All right, here we go. It is the System Failure Podcast number 22B. Well, 23B, right? We did. We published. We pushed out 22. We we tried to do 23 last week, and uh, we failed. Well, we we put 23 in the can, uh, only to find out that there was an issue with the SD card or something like that, Brian. Isn't that what happened? Well, it turns out there's a lock on the SD card that you have to manually switch if you wish to record anything. Uh, yeah, so it is funny the way that entropy is always hanging out there, uh, <laughs> waiting for you. Yeah, um, it does seem like uh, that the that, that uh, the yawning chasm of entropy swallowed yet another podcast. So we missed last week, but we're back and uh, we are uh, ready to uh, keep going. Well, uh, well, what's going on this week, Nate? Right. Oh, not much. I'm uh, about to drive my fiance to the airport to uh, down to Boston because she is flying to Indonesia for a month a month in the sun while I stay here in the snow and work, which is unfortunate. But she's flying to our favorite airport, Istanbul. We have a uh, Istanbul's are, like they have this beautiful like brand new airport with all um, high end stores, you know, Balenciaga and whatever. And they also have a re- they also have delicious food, like a large. They call it the Grand Bazaar after Istanbul. Istanbul's Grand Bazaar, but it's really a huge food court in the airport. So they also have the Yotel, uh, which is a mini hotel. You can it's kind of like a prostitute hotel where you just pay by the hour, but um, it's really handy if you've got ten or fifteen or you know twenty hours between flights. Hang, I mean, I've done we've done some brutal stays in the Istanbul airport. Uh, so highly recommend that uh, the Yotel um, there. I want to know about this food court. Uh, is there like a Panda Express or <laughs> no? Um, uh, it's all um, like traditional Turkish cuisine, and I have no idea what the names of the dishes are. Um, you can get like your Turkish coffee and your Turkish delights, but they have all manner of other things, and you just basically get a big cafeteria tray, right? And uh, you point to the dishes you want, and when you get to the end, they they uh, ring you up with an egregious bill. It's actually not too bad. Um, I guess the um, the Turkish lira is that their currency is in a state of collapse, so you get some nice. So things aren't too expensive there in the old Istanbul airport. Yeah. Well, haven't you run afoul of like the hot bar at LaGuardia or something? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like twenty five dollars a pound uh, or something. Yeah, uh, right. If you like, whatever. What is the new terminal at um, at JFK? That the the JetBlue terminal is like Terminal C or something. Terminal Five, they call it. But yeah, I remember <laughs> on one of my trips to and from Florida, I uh, I dared to go in there for the most modest of salads, but you have no idea what it's going to cost to get to the end of the line. It's like it's like it's like twenty seven dollars, and that was two thousand and nine. That was eye watering. Um, so opposite experience in Istanbul. So, um, and it's just a little ironic. I mean, uh, well, it is nice that Tracy there is going to get away and enjoy some warm weather, but it is like six to sixty five degrees right now here in Portland, yeah. like on February tenth uh, or whatever. Today Very is. weird. Yeah, we're getting a strange heat wave. I guess we'll get back to. Um, winter weather soon enough here in the next couple of days um, but it's yeah it's it's making me feel stir crazy like i'm excited for spring also and uh, i wish i was also going to indonesia but as it is i'm merely the chauffeur uh, down to the boston airport so that'll be fun and it'll be a week uh be a week a month of bachelor bachelorhood for yours truly so That'll be interesting. It'll give Trace and I a chance to miss each other. You know, the reunion's always fun at the other end. And uh, in the meantime, I will uh, be able to watch only the programs I've selected on the television. There won't be any negotiations, uh, so that'll be pretty sweet, too. Well, now the Super Bowl's over, we can uh, get back to watching some hockey. Yeah, so. I tried to tune into our Bruins yesterday, and they just lost 3 nothing. It was just the worst game I'd ever seen. Ouch. That was most unfortunate. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, right, that, that's the transition, right? You go from the NFL, and then the Super Bowl comes and goes, and then you're into the NHL, right? That's the pro move all right yeah well uh what's going on with me uh well yesterday i went down to massachusetts and played some magic the gathering uh it stank (laughs) 
But also, I haven't played any Magic the Gathering like in the last two months. I've been playing the guitar, man. I see. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you seem to go in fits and spurts with your magic cards obsession. Uh, like, uh, be a lot of magic cards, and then not not some, and then uh, you'll swear it off as the work of the devil, and then be back to it. So, is this part of that regular cycle, or do you think you're uh, going to put down the magic cards uh, and never go back to them this time? Uh, well, I guess it's just a question of how interesting the format is, and to play the kind of decks that I want to. And I guess it's not super hospitable to doing what I want to do. But I mean, maybe it'll seem good again at some point. But man, I've sure been playing a lot of guitar. See, I found out that there is like a, a tab on Songster for uh, like the, the delicate sound of thunder version of time, which uh, we know David Gilmore always switches up the solos for the live versions, and he came up with this crazy solo for time, and uh, it's just a lot better than the studio version. Wow. It, it's interesting to see how it's better too, and like uh, from like a theory standpoint, to see what it is he's doing that's different. And, uh, man, it's way, it's way less soul-sucking, I guess, uh, than grinding away over uh, the, the computer, like uh, peering at the, like, this little digital display and trying to fathom what's going on with these little digital objects. I mean, that's what you want to be doing if you want to be good at Magic the Gathering. And so, yeah, uh, playing guitar is certainly more exciting. <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's two, you, there's like really, the things you can do with your time really fall into like... Um two categories you can either create or consume and i would imagine that playing music falls more into the create category and consume is when you're um you're a rat in someone else's maze and they're making money off of you and that's what magic cards would be most likely and oh by the way didn't i see that magic is putting out a fallout themed series or a fallout themed uh expansion yeah well they've done it with um like street fighter and <laughs> the walking dead and uh yeah I, I don't know how much i love these things but uh i mean uh it does bring people into the game i guess they did lord of the rings too because eh? i uh who was it that oh, yeah. you know paid all those millions for the uh the post, malone. post malone yeah yeah <laughs> maybe not one of his finer investments or maybe it's like um expensive cars where they appreciate over time and he'll be glad he did it yeah, I mean, some Magic the Gathering cards are good investments, others not. Uh, I guess we'll see how that one stands. It, it, it does say one of one on it, and it's the only card on it like that that says one of one. But there are like millions of versions of that same card that don't say one of one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Speculative, versus, uh, speculative value versus exchange value. Or, excuse me, um, use value versus exchange value. We're speculative value slash exchange value. Uh, very interesting. Um, I guess the other thing that's going on is uh, I watched uh, Jonah Hill's documentary a bit about uh, him and his psychologist it's there. A, it's a documentary? Yeah. It's like not scripted that people are just talking about stuff that actually happened? Well, it is. I don't know. He's trying to show how his psychologist does his thing. And to some extent, it's scripted, but he also goes behind the scenes. So I guess it kind of goes in and out of being scripted, right, you so might say. Uh, it's like a docudrama or something like that? Uh, yeah, but at, at some point, uh, Jonah Hill... Um, well, you know how he looks now. He's all skinny hmm, and yeah. uh, whatnot. And he pulls out uh, like a, this blown-up photo of himself from... Uh, his younger days, like uh, back in the the super bad days, you know, he was quite fat. All right, yeah, I think about uh, Barry from uh, what what is the name of that movie with the game designers? It's supposed to be Adam Sandler, but it had a different lead. Um, Grandma's Boy, 
where that was his, like the first movie I ever saw him in, and he was like the loser of the group. Right. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. Barry yeah. sucked on his first titty, right? Isn't that the... the <laughs> I forgot he was in that. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> in this blown up photo, he also has like bleach blonde hair and uh, like a nose piercing in, and he uh, he's overall pretty revolting. <laughs> and he's just talking about how like being fat when he was young like affected him. And, uh, so he, like, he spent his whole, like, adult life or his whole life, I guess, trying to, like, get away from, like, uh, this, this photo that you see of him where he looks terrible. Well, I mean, uh, I see what you're saying, but didn't he, like, lean into the fat clown role and get paid millions of shekels for, you know, didn't he, like, kind of... Does, I'm just wondering if that figures in, having not seen the movie. Like, I mean, didn't he accept a massive paycheck to be the the, the jester, you know, uh, be the loser court sort of for, for these movies, super well, bad? And- I think what he would say is that, uh, you know, being successful didn't do anything to quell his anxiety. Well, being successful, but being a clown to be successful, I can see why that would definitely, yeah, if you're the person everyone's laughing at, I mean, it's great that you have a healthy bank account, but it, it's got to be devastating for the psyche. Well, also, I mean, he got, you know, skinnier and did roles then, and uh, that also didn't quell his anxiety, I think is what you would say. I see. And that uh, success in general didn't uh, solve the problem. And uh, what they're getting at there, see, they get into, like, the the Jungian shadow self a bit there, and... uh, like what you, what he's saying, I guess, is you, he, he, what he tries to do now is, uh, you know, like love this photo of himself, uh, rather than try to get away from it, or he tries to listen to it, uh, specifically, um, which I guess I think is, uh, good advice, <laughs> uh, if you're trying to, like trying to like escape yourself is like, uh, it's like you're, you're listening and attention or whatever. Uh, that you have to give to yourself rather than uh, escapism, right? Hmm. Well, I don't know. Okay, so um, I think that there is value to like, like um, people get caught in cycles of behavior. Jonas Spencer talks about this. People get ci- caught in cycles of behavior, and you end up sort of being haunted by your old self. So, isn't it better to like kill the past and let it die? Like, um. When you when you are when you have a ship and someone's trying to board your ship in the movies, they always throw the grappling hooks, you know, with attached to the ropes onto, you, and you have to like take the axe and you know sever those ropes as fast as the 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 crew trying to board your ship can board. Like, so isn't it best to try to not, to try to escape from old patterns of thought in the past? I mean, I guess doing the exact opposite thing you've done in the past, you're you're still reacting to this past version of yourself that doesn't really exist right it's it's nothing but a mental impression right your connect your relationship with your past self is entirely conceptual it's gonna be based on a lot of false memories right i mean um well i think what you're trying to do is uh sort of stop uh the wobble like you're like if you're having like these bipolar highs and lows you gotta like sort of reintegrate with yourself right yeah and uh i think uh Trying to kill the past is uh, definitely the opposite <laughs> of that. Uh, so, I don't know. I'm not like a union expert, but I don't know. I think, well, I think you have to try to like listen to that photo of yourself or like that, that past self and understand like what it wants rather than try to stuff it down, I guess. Like, I, like, like stuffing it down is like not not the way 
Yeah, yeah. Well, leaning into it, all, but leaning into it is still you're still like relating to this thing from the past. Um, I don't know. I guess I'd. Well, I don't know. In some ways, the past is like valuable. It's like it's how you think of yourself as who you are. Like it's your sense of identity. But when the, in, in in cases where it's self limiting, is it better to not navigate with reference to that past at all, or is it best? Or should you use the past as an example of what not to do, what not to be, what you know, do, do what Jonah Hill? It sounds like you're saying Jonah Hill is doing, and just do the opposite of what you've normally done. You know, where you would normally zig, you instead zag going forward. Um, and try try to change your life that way, um, or is it better, like I'm saying, to abandon the zigzag pattern altogether and not navigate with reference to it whatsoever? But what was that? How did the movie conclude? Did like uh, did did Jonah Hill have a message for us all? Is that basically the message? Um, does he is he happier now, or is it just uh, uh, does his tension remain unresolved? Well, he's doing better, and that's why he's made the movie because he wants to get the message of his psychologist out there, and he's having his psychologist put out. Trying to give people some tools. Another thing that he talks about is just you have to like accept that I don't know, like work is like the nature of life, right? And so you're gonna have to like 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 life isn't gonna be like cushy and soft, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're just trying to give some tools out there, and um, I think the it depends on what kind of relationship you have with self-loathing. I think right is what ultimately what it comes down to, and so if you're caught in some kind of self-loathing pattern. I'd probably recommend watching the movie. <laughs> All right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's doubly interesting how much um, Jungian psychology is coming up these days, how much psychedelics, uh, th- there's a connection there between Jungian psychology and psychedelics. Yeah, well, Jung could obviously, I don't know, I'm not like a really an expert on Jung, but obviously Jung has a huge influence, like you're saying, like with the UFOs also, Jung had yeah. a lot to say about that. Jung could obviously like see something about the human nature he could see it the way it is and it's not like quite what you would expect and this business of the shadow self like plays into that and so like there's a shadow self in the sense of how you uh like you you might hate your past self or see this like unlovable golem sort of thing uh, but also there's like your shadow self and how you feel like about people around you and the way you negotiate relationships yeah. and like when you have like disdain for someone you're you're still interacting with your own view of the world, so it's kind of like having disdain for yourself. And I don't quite know how you're supposed to negotiate all of that. But uh, yeah, Jung is like a genius and had uh, his finger on the pulse of like all of this. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. he's a veritable well of uh, relevance. What with uh, the psychedelics and the UFOs and, and all that. Um, it's um, his big Jung's as far as I and I haven't read a single one of Jung's books, although I aspire to. Um, but my understanding is that uh, he thinks in terms of archetypes. Um, in other words, y- you, it, it could be true to say that Jungian philosophy or Jungian psychology is a redux of Platonistic philosophy. And you could also say that Christianity is a redux of Platonistic philosophy, and that the magic of the Renaissance that brought us modern science is a redux of Platonism. And so it's very interesting to me to note that these things percolate, these bubbles, these, these, the, the, if our culture's a big stew, these specific ingredients keep bubbling up whenever the stew, whenever there's a disaster, whenever you have the slave society of Rome collapse or the medieval economy collapse, or in the case of the present day, uh, as it's a, a perpetual artifact of system failure to suggest that uh, capitalism is a system that is in a state of decline. And collapse, and in this late stage capitalist environment here, once again we find the UFOs, the lights in the sky, 
the Jungian philosophy, aka Platonism, um, all swirling together in a crazy mixture that is really, um, man, it sure is a wild time to be alive. You know, here's something I've been thinking about. Uh, like, like, what does it mean to say that the system has failed? Because, I mean, we've talked about how the system probably ultimately failed back in 2008. It was like a, yeah. a key moment, although there's several key moments. Uh, I mean, the crazy bailouts back during the COVID would also be some indication of that. But, uh, I mean, really, I would say the system has failed because, like, no one really believes in democracy anymore, right? I mean, it's just that they're, they're, like, the – our reptilian overlords are engaged in, like, a crazy power grab, and uh, we're all doing what we can about it. Um, are, you suge- so are you saying no one believes in democracy as a virtue or a value, or that no one believes we have a democracy anymore? Yeah, B. B, okay, yeah. All right, yeah, I think everyone wishes we had a democracy, and every- everyone laments the fact that what we had instead have is an oligarchy, highly regrettable. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, – well, I talked. Was it our last podcast where I talked to the Palestinian protesters? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I went and talked to the Palestinian protesters, and none of them are. I asked them who they were going to vote for, um, and none of them support, you know, the Democratic candidate. And it's a huge issue on the left, which has, uh, you know, emphasized uh, like fairness or uh, equity, um, and this whole. <laughs> business of supporting Israel like carpet bobbing Palestinian neighborhoods is like a real problem for the brand of uh, the Democratic Party, right? <laughs> yeah. And so this issue has just made it, it's just another brick in the wall, right? That uh, makes it clear that, ah, uh, yeah, we just don't, everyone knows we don't have the democracy. It's a huge lie. And yeah, we have the lights in the sky. Um, for those yeah. keeping score at home, that's Pink Floyd reference number two for podcast uh, for System Failure podcast number twenty three. Highly satisfying. Oh yes, and yeah, uh, I I think that um, you you would have to, in like nineteen ninety nine, you would really have to. It would be hard to have the sorts of conversations that people have now about uh, about the like the deep state, for example. That everyone just assumes the deep state exists now, but that even like in two thousand and like ten, that was a crazy conspiracy term. Um, but what I I think. I, I think that everyone, most pe- enough people have lost faith in the system now um, to where uh, it's not really all that controversial to suggest we're in a state of system collapse. But what I think it means is that the system is unable to replicate itself over time. So it's not able, to, you know, so it's not able, in 2025, the system will be less functional than it was in 2024. And also we're hurtling towards an inflection point. And I think we have been, I think that that, the, that inflection point got set in stone in 2008. We allowed the private bankers to connect their private debt problem to our currency, our debt-based currency, and therefore, thereby guaranteed an impending sovereign debt crisis. Their, their private debt crisis has, is in the process in, of being converted into a sovereign debt crisis that we're going to have to deal with. Um, you can just look at how, like how much, how many dollars have been printed, even just since 2020, uh, versus how many dollars overall there are. Um, so yeah, I think. Um, <clears throat> I think that's what it means to have the system be in decline. It can't replicate itself into the future in just the way that the economic system of peasants and lords couldn't replicate itself any further than the, you know, than the 15th century and the slave society of Rome couldn't replicate itself past the fourth century. You know, the, uh, we're, we're now at another major, uh, turning of the age. And when the ages turn, then reality itself breaks down, uh, which is, 
fascinating. Uh, and I, that's what I think is happening to us. That's why I think we're, that's why I think Jonah Hill has got a movie about union psychology and why there are lights in the sky and the drums of war in the Holy land. And uh, of course, you know, and, um, well, the, we all know the list at this point. I guess we'd probably, for the system to continue, right, we're going to need to have another 9-11 style attack on our freedom or like the COVID. And uh, so, I, I mean, I guess I think the system's going to grind on in that there's not going to be like an overnight kind of change. And I don't know, I guess it's just one of the ways in which the system has collapsed. But it's kind of a big deal that, uh, like, I think, you know, prior to 2016, if you... Like, I, I, I think people would have some faith in democracy. And I think that faith is absolutely gone now. <laughs> it's not, it's never been, what's happening, I don't, do, um, do you think, I would not think that most people would see what's happening as a referendum on democracy. Um, there are people that don't even see it as a referendum on capitalism. They just say, well, this is just crony capitalism. They sound just, just like the people who, just like the, when people people who want to advocate for communism, then you bring up the worst excesses of the Soviet Union or of the Great Leap uh, Forward in China. People say, well, yeah, but that wasn't real communism. And so now that, much like Thelma and Louise, our capitalist system has gone over the edge of the canyon, you know, just a few short decades after the communist system of the, the, the Soviet communist system in the early 90s, now people will say, yeah, uh, yeah it was not re- the problem we're having is not real capitalism, it's crony capitalism. But I think that um, what's really at issue here is that it's, it's, it's the simple prophecy that's now 150 years old. The technology will destroy like, – techno- the, the, the system of employees and employers is doomed to go the way of the system of peasants and lords. And I think that the real, the real inflection point isn't, isn't even necessarily the sovereign debt crisis that we in the United States have signed ourselves up for because this is a problem that's happening over the entire modern world. I think the real inflection point has to do with debt. Um, the more technology replaces workers, the less workers will be able to negotiate for wages at the bargaining table with their employers. And um, the more employee, the more of the pie the employers can keep for themselves. If you think of employers as a toll booth, right? You have a mass of people who create goods and services, and a mass of people who consume goods and services, and that's a virtual virtuous cycle, like the like that like the recycle the, the icon for recycling. It's just arrows, you know going around in a big circle but what the people who own the means of production can do is charge a toll like they charge a premium in the way that a ticket scalper out in front of td garden will charge a premium on a bruins ticket they can they they are in a position to collect a toll on that cycle and the money they collect um, comes out of the economy where money is flowing in a in a virtuous cycle and ends up sequestered where it can't it, you know it can't impact the economy, and then you end up with people who are addicted to that wealth accumulation um, and can't stop. And even though they can't ever spend this money, and their children will never be able to spend this money, they still keep trying to run up the score. You know the old saying: um, a million dollar a million seconds is like eleven days, but a billion seconds is like thirty two years. You know, people these billionaires like they're they're just. They're just out to get the highest, the high score, despite the fact that it's functionally useless to them. And so I think that the inflection point we're hurtling towards is the moment when the, the way that we've kept the, that cycle running, even though um, people, there is a, a predator, a third party siphoning money out of that cycle, that's leaving shortfalls. Like the, what I mean by shortfall is the, 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 the workers, the collectively in the United States, don't have enough money to buy back from themselves 
the the goods and services that they're producing when they go to work because there's a third party leeching money out of the system, taking that profit. And the way that we've kept the system running is with debt. I mean, um, it's the 1970s when technology like um, international long-haul flights or international communications allowed us to offshore most of our economy. Unprecedented in the history of the economics and voluntarily deindustrialization of your own country. Moving our own factories from the United States to, you know, within the borders of our chief economic rivals. I mean, it's, it's a... It's a terrible blunder. It would be comical if it wasn't our country doing it. Um, but the way that we've made up, we fired all the state, all the domestic workforce stateside, uh, let them just fend for themselves in the gig economy. And the way that we've made up for the fact that we have all these goods for sale at Walmart coming from overseas, um, but except for the workers here don't get paid enough to buy it all is with debt. You know, we, the, the difference between what people consume and what money they've earned is the debt. And the inflection point is admitting that so much of the wealth of billionaires is reckoned in future receipts um, in, in, a, in accounting, accounts receivable. Like the, the money that you expect to receive is just as good as a dollar in the bank. Now it's counted the same. And uh, so much of the wealth much of the wealth of the wealthy is reckoned in anticipated future receipts. That is, um, we, may, we, the regular unwashed masses, may not have enough money to buy what we need now, so put it on our credit tab, and then someday we'll pay that tab. And so we have been, we have solved the problem of the fact that the workers don't have enough money to consume the goods and services that they themselves produce. We've solved that problem by introduced by borrowing the money back from the wealthy who are who are the third party parasites, the the toll booth in this equation, and admitting that those debts aren't going to be paid is the real the real thing we don't want to admit. In two thousand and eight, the corrupt banks like Wells Fargo wrote all these bad loans to all of these folks who could never pay it back. And the solution to that is to write down the loan to the actual ability of the borrower to pay the loan. But instead of that, we just hooked, we just got out the money printer, printed the dollars, and then monetized these loans, bought them at face value so that the people who own the banks and the wealthy who own these loans wouldn't have to take a write down on the value of their balance sheets. And so that's what we're really putting off is admitting that all of this wealth of the billionaires is really anticipated future receipts from all of us. And we're just going to have to admit at a certain point that there's not enough money in the economy to actually pay all these debts. And so that admission is what is the real can we're kicking down the road. Does, does that make any sense? I think so. Oh uh, yeah. Well, we've talked about it for 23 episodes. I'm pretty <laughs> yeah. sure. So that's what I, when you say, well, what does it mean that the system can't replicate itself? Well, that's what I mean. Like we are reaching a point where we have to like uh, hold up our hands and say, okay, we just have to admit that the gears are grinding to a halt here. We've got real dysfunction and we're going to have to do something fundamentally different about how we organize, how we organize the production and then the distribution of goods and services. Well, I mean, what they can, we can just have another nine 11 style attack on our freedoms though. And right. That'll, uh, <laughs> stop that from happening. That's the alternative, right? You can just lock people. And that's really what COVID was all about. If you ask me, and I know you agree too, it was like, well, we're just going to shut everything down and then, and then send everyone checks. And we're just going to create this whole synthetic economy and just keep the scenario just ticking along for just another year or two. Do you remember what was happening in 2019? We had major issues at the repo, major issues at the repo window at the fed federal reserve where, you know, if you, like you're a huge bank and I'm a huge bank and people come and take money in and out of our, each of our banks all day long. Um, but the Federal Reserve requires us to have a certain amount of our deposits and actual cash on hand. And so if you have more than you need and I have less than I need, I'm just going to borrow for you overnight to balance our books. And that that thing where huge banks can just put a, t- put a couple million in, take a couple million out to balance their books so that they're 
um, so that they're compliant with their reserve requirements from the Fed. I mean, that thing, people like don't want, to, leading into 2020, people didn't want to, it was getting really, really expensive to use the repo window. People, there were, in other words, there were, people weren't, you, you need, you, ideally there'd be, you know, a bunch of banks who need money and a bunch of banks who want to loan money, but no banks were loaning money. And so the price jacked up, the, the overnight interest rate jacked up. Um, just an example of like the, the, the plumbing rattling and shaking ominously. And, uh, but then COVID came along and no one, ta- and the, the yield curve was inverted. You know, the, 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 the price of, it was like cheaper to buy, <laughs> it was like cheaper to buy debt with a 10 year maturity than a two year maturity. I mean, it's just, um, it was wild times in late 2019, but then we had, we had an excuse to shut everyone down and just create this whole synthetic economy um, that where the government just mails out checks to everyone. And, um, well, I mean, we all, and, and, but now we need like another crisis to, to do, to do that, do that trick again, you know, because the actual economy where people create good, generate goods and services and then buy them isn't, you know, isn't working. It doesn't exist anymore. Long gone. Yeah. So how long until the next crisis? If Donald Trump gets elected, I think it'll happen very soon. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Um, that's the question everyone wants to know. Like when is the big, you know, the big crash coming? Um, one thing that's definitely happening is that history is speeding up as we go here. Uh, things seem to be speeding up at an like the like the pace of technology, um, the, the 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 provision of technology, the advent of, te- of technology increases as an, at an exponential rate. Uh, so where like if you lived in France in the 11th century, you you know you would never see. You might see one improvement to like a plow handle or something your whole life, but we have watched our we have just we've watched the internet come and then like cell phones come and now AI. I mean the the technology that's coming down the pipe that is just absolutely that will absolutely change our lives forever is just like one after another every few years at this point. Uh, pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was like 18 years between 9-11 and COVID or something like that. Yeah. And so I'd have to imagine it won't be 18 years until the next one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, <laughs> along with the rate of technology and whatnot, too. Well, um, speaking of uh, uh, the collapse of the world order, um, I did have a chance to listen to Dr. Brett Weinstein on the border crisis. Um, we talked about this in our lost pod number 23, but I reckon it deserves a rehash here and now. Um, do, how much do you remember from that pod, Brian? Cause now will have been two weeks since you listened to it. Well, I mean, Brett Weinstein was down in Panama and revealed the shocking nature yeah. of, uh, the immigration situation down there. Yeah, I guess there's a Pan-American highway that goes from Alaska all the way to um, down to the tip of Argentina. And um, the you, so you can literally drive from, you know, the, like Tierra del Fuego all the way to Alaska, except for there's one 60-mile gap, the Darien Gap there in Panama. And so Dr. Weinstein flew down to Panama and reported back to all the rest of us. And I think, I think he was on Tucker's pod, right? Isn't that who was interviewing him? Yeah. And uh, he reported that uh, yeah, there's a there's a uh, a lot of there's a lot of migrant activity, and then also a lot of like Chinese nationals down there too, and a lot of folks moving through South through, through Central America. Uh, I guess the deal is that you can fly into Lima, Peru without a visa, and so you fly into Lima, Peru, and then you make your way through Colombia and then into North 
into Panama, the Isthmus of Panama, where there's the 60 mile Darien Gap, and it's just the Wild West. It's just junk. People are just trying to make their way through this jungle any way they can, and people are being robbed and raped, and it's a crazy scene. And then, as mentioned, there's also there's also the there, there are like um, South American migrants, and then there's also a lot of Chinese nationals who are also doing this migration, and it's very we and that was really there. There weren't a lot of like concrete takeaways from the pod, just that it's very odd that this is happening, and how can we understand why would the Chinese be sending people through Panama it, like what is going on like are we is there some kind of nefarious play on here and I don't really know the answer to that but I do think that thinking in terms of countries thinking in terms of uh, a globe whacked where every inch of the globe except Antarctica is whacked up into countries is an old 600 year old way of thinking of things that I that I think is passing away uh, said another way I think that um if we regard the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, signed in 1648, as the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, modern era with its capitalism, um, then the whole business of having n- nations with, like the whole world whacked up into nations with international borders um, is, is, is only as old as that Treaty of Westphalia. And I think that, I don't think this is the way we'll always conceive of the always conceive of international geopolitics. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. Uh, he, oh man, uh, he has a, he has a Indian name and he is uh, like one of these venture Silicon Valley venture capitalist guys. I am now blanking on his name, but he wrote a book about like the end of the end of the old way of thinking of nations. And like um, his idea is like, well, you, you could really, it doesn't people's geographic look with the, with the coming of the internet. People's geographic location, Balaji Srinivasan, that's the name of the man who I was blanking. Balaji, he says, because of the internet, your geographical location doesn't really matter so much anymore. You could be governed by your preferred tax policy, your preferred uh, set of political um, theories. You know, you, you really doesn't matter who you live among physically because you can have, all, because so much of business is done online and so much is... So much of our lives are virtual now. You could really belong to a country of your choice without ever actually moving. And so there may be geographical borders and the idea of nation states is something that is passing into history the same way that the capitalist system of employers and employees is passing into history, right? If the Treaty of Westphalen, the Treaty of Westphalen ended something called the 30 year, an unpleasant episode called the 30 years war, which really was about the Protestant, the final culmination of the Protestant Reformation. The, the idea is that there are now these things called international borders and the Pope is no longer allowed to cross those international borders with his edicts and control what goes on in other countries. This was the, what the Protestant Reformation was fought over. And indeed, the thing that touched off the Thirty Years' War was the incident in Prague where some Catholic administrators from the emperor tried to inform the people, good people of Bohemia, that they would not be allowed to be Protestant, that they were going to have to be Catholic. And so they chucked him out the window. Um, a whole bunch of... Uh, army, it, like the, it was like dominoes falling, just like World War One. And before you know it, all of Europe was plunged into this Thirty Years' War. And at the end of it, when all the dust had settled, they said, "Okay, no more letting the Pope go into other people's countries and tell them what religion they have to be. We, we're going to have to, we're going to whack up the entire world into." Before this, you'd have like nation states, right? Like you'd have the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. And when Florence was its main city and that's where people ruled from and it would be like surrounding agrarian farmlands, you know, agrarian farmlands surrounding your city state. Um, so the world was dotted with city states, but not fully whacked up into countries prior to 1648. 
And uh, so I'm wondering if uh, just listening to Brett Weinstein talk about how, I mean, the borders just don't mean anything. People just stream across the borders. It is being used for political reasons here in the United States. Obviously, there are business interests that love the unpaid labor. Uh, there are political interests that love the human interest story of the poor, my, you know, the poor mother with her children trying just trying to build a better life for herself. Um, accusations of racism for those that are opposed to um, restriction of immig- immigration is also politically useful. And then you have the Chinese government, which our economies are tied together. Like we're their big market. We're buying all like so many of their products. But on the other hand, they're trying to outcompete us and become the talk dot economically. And oh, by the way, the Chinese hold tons and tons of our treasury bonds, you know, and they would love to see us fail, except for a lot of their wealth is you know, reckoned in our treasury bonds. So it's a messy, complex situation. And I just wonder if the old way of thinking, the old Treaty of Westphalen way of thinking of nations is on its way out and that Balaji Srinivasan's vision of uh, digital countries or digital political blocks is the way of the future. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, go ahead. Well, there's the uh, business of the joint venture researching the COVID also. I mean, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. We we um, I guess it was Obama that banned the uh, the 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 uh, designer custom diseases, the development thereof here in the United States. So uh, the NIH just moved it over to China, possibly in violation of uh, of that. I'm not unclear, but um, yeah, that's really interesting. Like so, we, like the development, the lab leak theory suggests that the genesis of COVID was a joint venture between the U.S. and China. Very very odd. Well, at any rate, obviously, like, the world's elite are all in lockstep, especially, like, through, like, the World Health uh, Organization. Uh, It's just everything, since Donald Trump got elected, like, everyone's gotten in lockstep, basically. And, uh, I mean, I would say it's definitely the case that uh, the Westphalian model is on the outs. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it means, yeah, to have all these Chinese people... uh, being, uh, you know, uh, corralled up this corridor into the United States. Yeah, certainly no one's talking about it besides Brett Weinstein. I mean, I guess they're, uh, Joe Rogan was talking to Aaron Rodgers about it a bit. That uh, And I've seen some stuff about it, but, you know, there's like that one area where Texas wants to put up like the razor wall, razor wire and stuff. And I guess there's, like, a giant hole, like, a half mile in the other direction. So it's just some political canard or something. Yeah. Yeah. I heard, I, I saw that, too. I, I, I understand why Dr. Weinstein wanted to go down to Panama. Because I'm like, I, it's so confusing. You get, like, is, I mean, some people are like, oh, there's no crisis at all at the border. And others say it's an existential threat. And I, I just don't know. I, and who knows? I mean, like, a lot of things, like abortion, get drummed up to, I think, distract us from the economic the 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 illogical economic reality we're facing so yeah it would be interesting to go down there because i heard that same thing where it's all a show and it's all put on you know for consumption um the the border crisis but i don't know i mean dr weinstein's report seemed pretty sober and pretty concerning uh so at least i mean i believe something's going on down there it's so hard to figure out what is what's the dealio in this day and age of um of I mean, when just like the the mainstream media has completely abdicated their responsibility to as our you know truth finding apparatus, 
to try to figure out what's going on in the world. Ugh. Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear that we are being inundated with migrants. And, uh, you know, former sanctuary cities like New York are telling immigrants not to come anymore. Um, I mean, it's it's to what end? Yeah, like do the Democrats want to get all these people um, registered to vote so, <laughs> so they can all vote Democrat? Um, I did see some. One of these representatives was suggesting that they could should be allowed to sign up for the military, uh, even you know, and then be awarded American citizenship for their service in the military. Um, which is like the idea of using foreign mercenaries for your um, military misadventures is uh, well, that, that was like Rome's signature blunder. <laughs> uh, so that's an interesting, um, an interesting piece to the puzzle. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I like how Brett Weinstein was saying in that podcast that we have to start considering hypotheses that seem crazy. Yeah, and uh, that's pretty much where uh, where we're at now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it, isn't it? Like, like reality. It, when your economic system goes belly up, like so do so do like conceptions of reality. Because conceptions of reality are always spun by the authorities, and the authorities are always trying to like. If you sit on, if you sit atop a huge, um, a huge uh, money making scheme, an exploitative money making scheme, you're going to do everything you can to keep those rivers of wealth flowing in your direction. And, uh, and so the authorities, like the priestly class is always a, a big part of who the authorities are. And, uh, the, the, the priestly class is usually the, the emperor is always exposed as having no clothes in times like this. Um, so I, I, I think that, um, the, unless it's a tough one because people who sound crazy might be crazy or they might actually be on the right track. Like the first people who suggested that, you know, the earth revolves around the sun instead of vice versa would have seemed crazy um you you could just any fool could look in the sky and see the sun moving they would have just seemed like lunatics um but i think when reality breaks down the people who the only people who can be right are the people who sound crazy <laughs> um so i appreciate uh i appreciate folks like brett weinstein being willing to uh consider hypotheses that seem outlandish um i think that's i think that's where we're at if we're honest at this point well, I think we're doing that very thing on this podcast with uh, the UFOs and conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. Why not? <laughs> um, you mentioned talking to the Palestinian protesters um, a week, the week before uh, last weekend, and um, I do regret that there's not a single presidential candidate who like, I feel like the Donald and Biden and RFK Jr. are all have exactly the same foreign policy with respect to Gaza and Israel. Um, which is highly lamentable, but I think, uh, I, I guess I'm still rooting for RFK Jr., of course, um, to uh, ultimately I'm rooting for 2024 to be the year where people really wake up and we really have a final, uh, a new reckoning with Platonism and with the lights in the sky and with the corrupt, um, the, the regulatory capture and corruption that has just brought this country to a halt, um, and uh, I was interested to um, tune into the uh, Adam. I, I watched uh, Doctor Drew do an interview with Dave Rubin, and I also listened to a random Corolla pod from last week. And I guess, and uh, now the Ace Man is all in on RFK Junior, which is exciting to hear. He had been at RFK Junior's birthday party the week before, like the night before. I mean, the Ace Man. Yeah. So the Ace Man went to RFK Junior's private birthday party and was hanging out with what's the name of rfk's wife who plays the wife of larry david on curb your enthusiasm cheryl hines yeah that's yeah, hanging out with those guys um and so rf junior k junior is going to be on the corolla pod soon and uh 
So uh, Corolla's all in on our, it's like the entire podcast sphere is like all in on RFK from Joe Rogan to Dr. Drew to, to, uh, to Corolla, which is interesting to see. Uh, Dr. Drew was like a straight, like a totally straight guy, like in terms of just believing what the, believing in the system before COVID. But he says he's been radically radicalized by COVID and is now willing to believe some seriously crazy things about the system in which he lives, which I was like, wow. Um, so well, I, yeah, Dr. Truth. Dr. Drew did say the truth about Hillary Clinton prior to COVID that she looked like she wasn't doing well. And then she was collapsed. In wow. I forgot about that. You're right. Yeah. Got booted off of CNN. Yeah. They punted Dr. Drew off CNN because he said that she didn't look healthy <laughs> in 2016. That is really interesting. Um, well, I reckon that the rise of the Donald, as you mentioned, which resulted in the system going through its antibody sort of immune response to the arrival of an outsider on the political chessboard. Um, it, it, to your point two podcasts ago from, from episode 22, I, I do kind of agree that the, the, that the chessboard, you know, it, 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 um, it was heavily impacted, but now it's kind of uh, rolled back onto its keel and has become stable again. That's why I'm ready for RFK. But uh, like if, um, if the rise of the Donald, was a recognition of was like a result of 2008 uh in 2016 maybe we can get and but then the donald didn't, he didn't like we, he does not really drain the swamp right he's like like i say he's kind of like um the the chessboard is um it's um compensated for his presence well the trump can like expose the swamp but i don't think he can drain it maybe that's the best way to put it yeah yeah but i feel like rfk jr could actually like when you talk about drain the swamp he's actually going to you know fire the regulators and actually get the corruption out of um out of like the justice department and the fda and the cdc um these have been his bailiwicks for like decades at this point and i feel like um Maybe his coming, maybe his election in 2024, though it won't solve all of America's problems and it certainly won't solve the issue um, with Gaza in the Middle East. Uh, everything else he says is nearly perfect. So it's interesting to see all of, all of the major podcast personalities all line up on the side of RFK Jr. Like you, do you think that Tucker Carlson is going to have an endorsement of RFK Jr. before November? I mean, I would be shocked if he didn't. Um, and so it's interesting. To see, I just wonder how relevant the podcast verse is to real life it has it supplanted the old mainstream media paradigm um, that was still alive and kicking very well in 2016 and barely hanging on in 2020 has it finally you know gone belly up i i hope so it'll be very curious to see how this you know the wall-to-wall excitement about rfk on the podcast circuit translates into real life in november very curious to see how that turns out well i did listen to dave smith's full interview with rfk about israel uh and rfk was bringing up some points about the suez canal and shipping lanes and whatnot and uh i mean he and he sounds like he cares about palestinian people um but he thinks that hamas has to be ousted i mean he was sort of on his back foot during some spots in the interview but i guess i at, at the end I don't know. I guess it was. I, I felt somewhat better about the situation, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't really know what to do about this Hamas problem. I, it probably would have big ramifications for the geopolitical landscape if we 
just I don't know, stop supporting Israel. I, 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 I guess the Suez Canal is like a big deal. Yeah, big shipping lanes, um, a lot of oil too. Uh, the Middle East is also all about oil. I mean, we used Israel as a weapons platform to menace the entire Middle East. Um, I, I listened to this pod too, but I don't remember what was RFK Jr.'s specific point on Suez. Do you remember that? Well, it was towards the end, and it, I think he was just saying there's going to be big political ramifications if we like stop supporting Israel because Hamas would probably try to oust the Israelis altogether. And uh, I don't know, there'd be a big impact. The Suez Canal is currently under the possession of the Egyptians. Uh, now, it was occupied by the Israelis in, from 1967 to like 73, whenever it was, wow. like for, for like a couple of years. They, right? In that 1967 war, the Israelis occupied the Sinai. Um, and then, the, uh, and it was the Camp David Accords where they gave it back to Egypt, uh, but kept the West Bank. Um, it, I think that my history is right there. Um, but uh, I'm not unclear. Like, does that mean Palestinians? I'm not. Yeah, it's just I'm not quite not quite sure. Well, I guess RFK didn't sound like he was naive about the situation in any mm, in any case. Yeah. There's some realpolitik going on there with uh, with RFK. Uh, huh? yeah. I mean, ultimately, I don't know why. Like, America has to be like the world police, and that's like a big part of the problem. Yeah, that's what I heard too. It's like RFK Jr. is just talking about how terrible the, the Hamas leaders are. He, he makes a differentiates between they and um, you know the Palestinians at large. But like uh, the idea that oh, okay, well this one organization is just so bad that they have to be that we have to do yet another foreign intervention and send yet a more boys from Oklahoma and Ohio out to you know, out to lose their lives or their limbs uh, fighting this unique threat. It's I just can't. I just don't care anymore. It's like, no, let's not have any wars of any kind. It doesn't go well for us ever at all. Um, but on the other hand, it's interesting to note that Suez was involved in like the demolition of the British Empire. Like, was it like 1959, the Suez Affair, where um, Nasser, I think, was the leader of Egypt at the time, and he wanted to nationalize the Suez Canal and punt the Brit- get, remove British control. The British had controlled that thing since the 1900s, uh, the 1800s. And um, I guess the Suez incident where the Egypt, Egypt was able to establish control of the Suez Canal and kick the British out despite them publicly saying they were going to try to keep it, uh, I guess that was a major humiliation for the Brits and a big part of the dissolution of their empire that ultimately ended with them devaluing their currency and like some, it was just, um, I guess we, it's interesting that the Suez Canal figured so heavily into the death of the British Empire. Maybe we're, it's like Afghanistan, one of these places where everyone's empire dies, whether it's the Alexander or the Brits or the Soviets or now the Americans. It, it's like invading Afghanistan is the first wrong move every time. <laughs> if you want to dispose of an empire, there's no faster and surer way to do it than to uh, mountain invasion of afghanistan <laughs> well it'd be nice to live like sweden didn't lock its people down during the covid right yeah and yeah. they're not like responsible for maintaining peace in the middle east i mean we're really like on the the vanguard of all the madness because like the military industrial complex needs to harness our economic output to uh, keep this thing lumbering along yeah, we need and, to we uh, need to protect the petrodollar. We need to keep we need to artificially gin up demand for the dollar by making sure that only dollar the oil is only traded for dollars on the world market. Say, yeah, I mean you just have to we we have to just have to deal with like a crazy amount of propaganda, and then our economic system is terrible, so we have to deal with tons of homeless people, and then our medical system is terrible, so everyone's fat and they're trying to ram 
COVID vaccinations on us. And, uh, oh man, it's crazy. Yeah. We're, we are in a, the, the tension, the fundamental tension I think that we're experiencing is between corporate profits and the public good. Um, and there were for a long time, um, corporate profits and the public good had, were aligned. Um, but the, the, um, but there is a, um, what do you, the departure, uh, the, those two, those two goals have, di- you know, have diverged from each other. And so now we can e- either have corporate profits or the public good and corporate profits have been winning since the seventies and public good has been losing since the seventies. And we're now really reaching a point where we can't in both of our political parties are really here to goose corporate profits and not at all here to help the public good. And so that's been the fundamental breakdown in democracy to which you alluded at the top of this podcast, um, or the feeling that democracy, our democracy isn't functional or doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. Oof. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> interesting times to be alive. That's for sure. See, I guess I just want to say about all that. It's like, ultimately the system will have failed when everyone agrees it has failed. Right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just the business in the middle East, is just a big, the uh, all the the, the lefties uh, are starting to see it too, you know, uh, because they don't care about like Donald Trump isn't like uh, it, I don't think it's just the issue. Like I mean, it, people care more about the humanitarian crisis in uh, <laughs> the Middle East than Donald Trump, or at least some people do. I see it on Twitter and uh, talking to Palestinian or the the other Palestinian protesters. You hear the same sentiment. Yeah. Uh, and the more the system tries to be biased against the Donald, the more popular the Donald becomes, right? It's like the, uh, the more disillusioned people become with the system, um, the, the, there is a um, – it's directly proportional how, how much the like, – like, like the court cases and the one-sided media coverage on the Donald – there's a there's a relationship between how much that makes people like the Donald in spite of, in spite of the establishment, <coughs> excuse me, and how disillusioned people are getting with the, with the the system, um, and yeah, I really think uh, like if the I, I think in twenty twenty sixteen Hillary Clinton, you know, she didn't even like go to Wisconsin. You remember, you know, the stories about her, like just just assuming. Uh, just having a totally uh, a, a, a political strategy totally disconnected from reality, like not even visiting Wisconsin, one of these one of these states that like is normally blue but could be like purple, and um, so it was like I think that the political class was caught off guard by 2016. They thought that uh, they didn't like even though like 55% of the country was just like, I, I have a mortgage and it that works and a job that I like, and I just want things to go smoothly and I don't want a bunch of upheaval. Like that was, that was most people in 2016. I think it was like 50, 50 in 2020, but I think now in 2024, it's gonna be like 55% of people want the upheaval and only 45% of us have the mortgage and the job that's working for us. And uh, I think that that, again, has everything to do with 2008. Like they really, in the wake of 2008, people were standing out in front of those banks on Wall Street, uh, on, on Wall Street, protesting the massive bailouts and uh, identifying themselves as the 99%. And that's when we had all of the woke stuff start to percolate. It can't be a coincidence. I think that, 
that's all part of a, I think that comes our way from like the Disney and Nike. Uh, these corporations have created this, this woke business that the, the, this, this woke canard that distracts from the economic realities. And that's the, in, you know, if and that, that's really the silver lining to the October 7th cloud. Like they, like that, the, the 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 defense of that agenda was always like, well, if you don't support this, you're a bigot. You know, immigration figures into this. Like, if you just don't, if you are for any kind of restriction on immigration, then you must be a bigot. Was the thinking for a long time, but October seventh really broke that. Like um, the like the the hordes of young people who looked with horror on Joe Biden's unconditional support of Israel in the wake of October seventh. Um, got called bigots by the establishment <laughs> for daring to suggest that maybe you know the the the, the destruction of tens of thousands of uh, Palestinian children was no way not a response at all to the uh, acts of October seventh. So that's what I think about when you mentioned going down and talking to the pro-Palestinian protesters. Like these people now are homeless, political, politically homeless because their criticism of Joe Biden. It just, it, um, the, the, the use of calling people a bigot and terminating the conversation there is gone now because of the situation in Gaza. So, um, and I think all that is directly connected to the economic realities that I just filibusted about for the last five minutes here. All right. Well, yeah, well, it's exciting stuff because uh, at least people don't seem to be falling for, uh, the propaganda you know, and people are not in love with it, and people are recognizing the system is failing. So, yeah, I sure hope 2024 stuff. is the year that finally a critical mass of us say, Well, that emperor has no clothes on whatsoever. He turns out he's naked. We can only hope. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, with that, I guess I should encourage our listeners to send us an email and let us know why we're crazy. Um, you can reach us at um, um, uh, not at substack.com as the email address k-n-o-p-p at substack.com and if you want to read some exciting essays about the end of the world why then you can just point your browser to not.substack.com and uh, read some uh, delightful essays written by yours truly and we hope to see you online alright we'll see you <laughs> alright